Okay, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that such a wonderful person as you will be on display for the whole universe to see. Thank you that one day we will see you face to face and be with you forever. Thank you that we can look at you now. We can learn of you now. Thank you for all the the scriptures and the thoughts that we've had before us so far this weekend. We pray that you'll continue to impress on our hearts something of yourself for us to delight in, something of yourself for us to to rejoice in, something of yourself for us to, to learn from and to imitate. And so we ask for, for your help as we continue to, to do this in your precious name. Amen. Okay. I'll read the scripture first and then I'm going to draw something up on the whiteboard. If you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. So, Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 11, but I'm not going to speak on all those verses. We're only going to speak on on three of those verses, but just so we have the context of of the entire passage before us. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5. For let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who subsisting in the form of God did not esteem it an object of repine, that is to grasp, to be on an equality with God, but emptied himself, taking a bondman's form, taking his place in the likeness of men, and having been found in figure as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, and that, the death of the cross. Wherefore also God highly exalted him and granted him a name that which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of heavenly and earthly and infernal beings, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father's glory. And then I'm I'm just going to read again. Just three verses, um, four verses actually, just five to eight, which are the ones that I I want to uh, focus on. For let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice the next three verses as three main points. Point one, who subsisting in the form of God did not esteem it an object of repine to be on an equality with God. Point two, but emptied himself, taking a bondman's form, taking his place in the likeness of men. And then point three, and having been found in figure as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death and that the death of the cross. Now, I'm going to draw a hands up if you like maths. That's pretty good, actually. I'm surprised how many of you like maths. So. I don't really like equations very much. I love graphs, though. I, I, I really do. I, lo- I think a graph can, can show you a lot. Uh, you can learn a lot from, from a graph. It's visual. Um, it's simple. Um, 
but it tells a lot. So, familiar with a simple graph like that where there are two axes? Okay. On this axis, we have time. So, as we move along the graph, we have the years going on. And on this axis, we have exaltation and humbling. Does that make sense? So, if you are a great person, you're up here. And if you're a lowly person, you're down here. And this may change with time. Now, if we can um, take an illustration for, for most of us. Most of us, we start somewhere down here. Um, we start as babies, born into the world. There's no reputation. We haven't done anything. We might be born into a, maybe a, a, a wealthy family, a well-to-do family. Maybe we're born into a wealthy country. Maybe we're born into a situation of privilege. And we are a bit higher up. Some are born in poverty. Some are born having nothing. And they might start a bit lower. And over time, perhaps, for most men, there is a degree of exaltation. We grow. We develop abilities. We begin to rise in the world. We make some money, maybe have a family, and we go up. And there is a degree of exaltation. Some, it is a big degree of exaltation. You see a celebrity, someone who is well-known and well-respected in the world, and they go up higher. Some are lowly and they, they're not very aspirational. And for them, the graph is, is more like this. But there is some degree of exaltation across life but there's also one other thing guaranteed you know Asaph um, in, I think it's Psalm 73 he looked at the prosperity of the wicked he looked around him and he said God you've been making me suffer all my life because I am righteous and I'm looking at the, 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 the wicked of this world and they are prospering and they're going up and they're going up and Asaph went into the sanctuary to judge things before God. And he saw that suddenly their humbling comes. Suddenly they go down. Now, you guys and girls are in the time of your life. Not so early that you don't know much. But not so late that you are towards the end of your life. You're at a time perhaps around here, wherever you may be. A time in which you, you make decisions about where you're going to go in the future. What direction you are going to, to track along. And that's why looking at the example of our Lord Jesus in this chapter is so important, particularly at this, this time of life. Now, eventually... Everyone, everyone goes down. Do you know what that's called? That's death. There isn't a single person who goes through their life, no matter how exalted they are, 
who goes down. We've talked a lot about Bill Gates for some reason so far at this conference. But he's a man who went right up. He made his wealth. He made his reputation. He used his wealth for philanthropy. He's very well respected in the world. A scandal comes upon him. He shot down. Maybe no scandal. And death comes. And he goes down in, in one swoop. Now, I want to show you the graph of, of our Lord Jesus. This is where he started. That's where he started. For him, he didn't start at birth. He was the ever-existing, eternal Son of God in the glory. Now, we read three verses, and I asked you to, to just look at them separately. So verse 5 was telling us to let this mind be in us. But verse 6, I'm going to call it the emptying. And we can demonstrate it basically like this. In one swoop, in one action, he went from the highest place of heavenly glory to the lowest place amongst men. And you think the graph ends there, but you know, in those of you, you've, you've all done maths. Can you go lower than zero on a graph? You sure can. There's negatives, isn't there? And the negatives is verse seven. Verse six is the emptying. I'll label that here. The emptying. But verse, verse six and then, this is what verse 7 looks like. This is verse 7. And I'm going to call that the humbling. Lower than you thought was possible. And then verse 8, which I'm not going to, to go over today, but I just want to show you God's way. This is verse 8. Uh, sorry, uh, we got that wrong. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, my apologies. Sorry, guys. Verse 7 is the emptying. Verse 8 is the humbling. Thank you. And verse 9 is the, is the exaltation. This is the graph for our, for our Lord Jesus. Now, do you know what a moral rule is or a moral law? We have natural laws in the world. We talked about mathematics. There, are, there is a natural law of mathematics. 2 plus 2 equals 4. It always equals 4. It doesn't depend which country you're in. It doesn't depend how old you are. It doesn't depend how you figure it out. Calculator, pen and paper. One formula, one equation or another. 2 plus 2 always equals 4. The laws of mathematics. The laws of gravity. You throw something up, it comes down. Um, you have a, a body with a, um, a greater mass and it's going to do more wreckage in its force when it's, when it's applied. There are laws of physics that don't change. They're the same laws. The same car that works here in Australia is the same car that works in Africa. It's the same law. Physics doesn't change. God has put natural laws in our universe. It's part of the reason why we know there is a God. 
Because the universe is ordered. There are laws of chemistry. There are laws of of logic. But God also has moral laws. Perhaps you guys know a few of them. For example, Galatians tells us that whatsoever a man sows, the same thing he will also reap. That's a moral law. If you sow bitterness, you're going to reap bitterness. If you sow hatred, you will reap strife. If you sow love, the same thing will be reaped. Sow grace. Sow good towards others. The same thing is reaped. Sow one thing morally, you reap the same thing morally, eventually. Um, Evil corrupts. It's another moral law of God. Put a bit of leaven in in some meal and it, it puffs it all up. Evil company corrupts good manners. It's a moral law. Cannot be gotten away from. Go to school, hang out with the wrong people and you will become the wrong person. We've all experienced that. You will eventually become like the people you spend time with. It's a moral law. And now... Here's a moral law of God. Um, And I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. And this is a moral law of God spoken by the Lord Jesus. Whoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled. And whoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. This is the spiritual version, perhaps, of every action has an equal and an opposite reaction. If you go down, he will put you up. If you go up, he will bring you down. It is a moral law of God that cannot be gotten away from. What is exalted is humbled, and what is humbled is exalted. We've seen it in this example here, of this graph of the Lord Jesus. And we've seen it of the examples of, 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 of the graphs that we had before um, in, in men. There are other examples in the scripture. Do you know the story of Haman and Mordecai? Haman was a man who was ambitious. He was cunning. He was working his way up in the kingdom. And Mordecai was a lowly man. He was a man of humility. He was a man of little means. He was a man who was, by all accounts, pretty much unknown in the kingdom, apart from being the guy who was sitting by the gate. And they were flipped. The exalted man was brought low and hung upon the gallows. And the lowly man who saved the king was exalted up to the, to the highest place. We have the example of Joseph and his brethren. They hated him. They sold him into slavery. They exalted themselves above him. And at the end, he is the great ruler of Egypt. And they are coming to him for for bread. Um, We can multiply examples. David and Saul is another one. David was hunted by Saul. He was persecuted by him all his life. And Saul was, was exalting himself over David. And the tables flipped. Whatever is exalted is brought down. Whatever is humbled is, is, is brought up. But there is no greater example. There is no greater example than one man. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There is no one who started in a higher place. There is no one who went to a lower place. And there is no one who was exalted back up above the very highest place in the universe of, of God. Um, I'm going to read you a poem. I, some of you might know this, but I, I quite enjoy it. Wouldest thou be great? Then lowly serve. Wouldest thou go up? Go down. But go as low as ever you will. The highest has been lower still. And so before we, we, we look at these verses in a bit more detail, I just want to ask you, in which direction are you heading? This is the time in your life to make these decisions. This is the time in your life to decide in what direction you're going to head in. Are you going to go up in this world or are you going to go down for the sake of God and his things? Um, now, for us, I just want to say one other thing is that it's easy. Do you know that? For the Lord Jesus, there was nothing in him that needed humbling. When he was up in the glory, there was nothing in him that needed to go down. For us, you can spend an hour thinking about yourself. You can make a list of a hundred things that are demanding of humbling. We are sinners, each one of us. If that's something that you've never thought about, if that's something that you've never weighed in your own heart before God before, that you are a sinner, that this place down here belongs to you. It is your rightful place. It is what is natural and necessary and deserving for you and I. Then you cannot begin even to know things right according to God. Then this example of the Lord is useless to you. It doesn't mean anything. It won't be helpful to you. That's the first step that you must understand. You and I are great, great sinners. We have done many things contrary to God. And this place that he went in, that is our rightful place. That's the place that we deserve. That's the place that, that we belong in, apart from his grace. Um, but let's look at verse 5. So the first verse there, it says... Let this mind be in you, which was, which was in Christ Jesus. Um, I'm going to give you the rendering from the ESV, itself, the ESV as well. Um, I like the way it's put there. It says, have this mind amongst yourselves. And I think that's really what the verse is, is saying. It's not let this mind be in you personally, in your room, apart from everybody. It's saying to us collectively, let this mind be found amongst you. Um, mind means a lot of things in the scripture, but here it does not mean have this understanding. It doesn't mean understand this point. It means be in this way minded. Have your mind pointing in this direction. The same way we would say to someone, um, be mindful about this thing. Be careful about this thing. Think about this. Have, have this before you. This is what the scriptures are saying. Let this mind be found amongst your, yourselves. So the question really is, is what mind? 
The example of our Lord Jesus here, we really, it's humility. It's humility. And so we need to understand what, what humility is. Um, I'm going to read. So I, I pulled a couple of quotes about what humility is. Okay. Um, I won't tell you who these quotes are from, except to say that they are from two people who are like so far apart that they probably wouldn't sit in the same room together. The first quote says this. Um, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Do you get that difference? It's not thinking that I am so little and small and I can't do anything. It's just not thinking about myself at all. I'll read you the second quote. True, true humility does not so much consist in thinking badly of ourselves as in not thinking of ourselves at all. I want you just to think carefully about this point. I'm going to apply it in a second to how it applies to the example of the Lord Jesus. Humility is not saying, I'm so bad, I can't do anything good, I'm, oh, I'm so useless, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at that, and being a miser about yourself. That's not humility. That's pride. That's just thinking so much about yourself that you're making yourself the object. You're making yourself the, the, the central thought. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Just getting on with the job. Thinking about what needs to be done. Do you know Moses? He was exalted up the top. And he thought he could do anything. And he beat the Egyptian and he thought he was going to save his people. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 that Moses thought... He didn't understand why the Hebrews couldn't realize that by his own hand, he was going to deliver the Israelites. Come on, guys. This is what I'm here for. Can't you see how powerful and mighty I am? I can do this. I'm in Pharaoh's house. I'm going to help you guys. He was exalted with pride. But then he was abased with pride. When God tells him, come lead my people. And he says, oh, do I have to go? I'm not very good. I don't know how to speak very well. Mm, just go find someone else. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and he was degraded with pride. That wasn't humility. He was degraded with pride. But you know, Moses became the most humble of all men. So humble, perhaps he wrote those words about himself. And he wasn't even thinking about himself. His self was not important. He didn't think about himself. Moses led the people of God through the wilderness, through trials and tribulations not once thinking about what was in his best interest but always thinking of God's glory God's right God's rights and God's people and that is a true true example of, of humility now um, so verse 5 told us to let this mind be in us but it also says that this mind which was in in Christ Jesus and I just want to, want to point out to you something important when you look at the scriptures, that the names of the Lord are very important. All right? There's no mistake. People will tell you that in Genesis, for example, sometimes it says Jehovah and sometimes it says Elohim, sometimes Lord, sometimes God, because 
the different people wrote different bits and they mushed it all together and that's why. And sometimes we have Jesus Christ and sometimes Christ Jesus and sometimes Jesus and sometimes Lord. And these things don't mean anything and it's just different people were writing in different ways at different times, putting it all together. Every word of scripture is there for a reason. Here's something to think about when you go home. You can go through the scriptures when you study it. Jesus is the name of the Lord on earth. It's his earthly name. It's his name of humiliation. Christ is his name in the glory. Remember um, in Acts, Peter said, um, this Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made to be Lord and Christ. It's his glorified name. So in scripture, when you read of Jesus Christ, it's the lowly man who was then exalted. And in scripture, when you read of Christ Jesus, like here, it's the exalted man who was humbled or humbled himself. So think about that. When you read these terms in scripture, look at it in the context in which it's given. Jesus Christ is from down to up. Christ Jesus is always from from up to down. Now the next verse. So this is the, the first drop down. We go from, from the highest to the, to, the, to the lowest place. Verse 7. Um, verse, sorry, I'm confusing myself, aren't I? Um, <clears throat> verse 6 and 7 together. Um, so, verse 6 really gives us the, 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 the place in which he began up, up in the glory. It says, Who subsisting in the form of God did not esteem it an object of Repine, so that is grasping at to be on an equality with with God. Uh, so again, I'm going to give you the rendering from the ESV. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at. Um, this was his place. That was his. It's not just his place. It's who he is. It's his eternal outward glory. His outward form was glorious. He dwelt in light unapproachable. The eternal God, the all-powerful God, the almighty God, the sovereign God, the one who speaks the word and creation is made. The one who decrees things from eternity past. And it is done. That is his his rightful place. It is the highest place in, in in the universe. But the scripture also tells us that He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at. He was there, but he didn't count it as something to hold on to, to to grasp at. I thought a long time, why does the scripture put it this way? It's a double, like it's a negative. You're adding a negative to a positive statement you've already said. Like you don't say Queen Elizabeth was the Queen of England and the Commonwealth and She didn't have to work really hard to get there. No, that's assumed. It's her place. She was born into it. Why do you put, why is this negative in here? He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped at. I think maybe part of the reason is because there were others who did. There were others who did and will. And I'm going to present three to you. Number one. Satan. Satan counted equality with God an object to be grasped at. 
He was the greatest of God's creation. He was no... He, God didn't... Don't think, you know, you look at... People make cartoons of Satan and he looks like this guy with horns and a, and a black cape and he looks very, you know, creepy and sleazy. Satan was beautiful. He was the, the cherub. He was the, the, the anointed one in, in, above God's creation. He had the highest place in God's creation. He was, God had placed him as, as a capstone of his creation. No, no, Satan was beautiful. He was beautiful. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 and verse, verse 13. <clears throat> Isaiah 14 and verse, verse 13. And this is what the thoughts that went through Satan's mind in the place in which he was. <clears throat> Isaiah fourteen thirteen, And thou did, did say in thy heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Perhaps that's, that's all the angels said. And I will sit upon the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. They were the thoughts of Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2. We have a similar passage. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 2. Um, reading from the middle of the verse, he says, Because thy heart is lifted up, and now has said, I am a God. I sit in the seed of God, in the heart of the seas. And thou art a man and not God, and thou settest thy heart as the heart of God. Um, that was to the king of Tyre, but prophetically a type of Satan. Satan was, was great, but he wanted to be greater still. He counted equality with God an object to be, to be grasped at. Unless you think it's just angelic beings who have done this, turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. The serpent then speaks to Eve. And he says, You will not certainly die, but God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be as God. This is what Satan presented to man. Man turned away from God when he wanted to be like God. Have we stopped doing that today? We haven't. We are exalting ourselves in the place of God when we say we don't believe in God. What is that but saying we will be our own gods? When we say we don't care about what the word of God says. What is that but saying we make our own word? When we say oh, what God says is, is, is old fashioned and Hard to understand. What is that but saying we are wiser than God. And what we come up with is better than what God says. And exalting ourselves. Counting equality with God an object to be, to be grasped at. I won't read the, the, the last example I had there. For, uh, the verses I had there because of time. But the man of sin. The Antichrist. Scripture tells us he exalts himself above everything that is called God. And he sets himself in the temple, as though he were God. And you can look at that in Second Thessalonians 2, 3-4 in, in your own time. 
<coughs> if you want to have a look at it. So turning back to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. The next verse tells us that our Lord Jesus, he, he emptied himself. Now all this verse goes together. I know it's a bit confusing because there are like three or four statements there. But he emptied himself, he took a bondman's form, and he took his place in the likeness of men. They're pretty much the same thing. They're looked at in different ways, but they're pretty much the same thing. What it's saying is that he emptied himself from the outward form where he was in the glory. And he went down into the place of where a man was. And not just any man, but essentially the lowest of, 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 of all men. And the King James Version, um, if you have it, says he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of, of no, no reputation. So here's something that's hard to understand. When the, when the Lord Jesus came to earth, did he stop being God? No. Did he empty himself of his divinity? No. Did he empty himself of his all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present abilities? No, he didn't. He could read the hearts of men. He saw Nathaniel when he was under the tree, when he wasn't really there. He had all those abilities. He was very, very much, much God. So what did he empty himself of? I made a list of, of, of a few things. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some that, that I thought of. Um, perhaps you can think of more. Um, and if you think of more, please come and tell me. Firstly, he emptied himself of his heavenly glory. He emptied himself of his outward display of heavenly glory. And he became an ordinary man. In Isaiah, it tells us that there was no beauty. Um, if, you, if you want to write it down, it's Isaiah 53 verses 2 to 3. It tells us he had no form or lordliness in him. The Lord Jesus, when you looked at there was no beauty in him um, that we should desire him. If you think that the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, was one foot taller than everybody else, and one foot broader shouldered, and incredibly handsome, and muscular, and, and able to speak with, with, with um, a deep voice and could command the attention of the people around him in that way, you are mistaken. He was an ordinary man. If you put him in a crowd, he would have disappeared in the crowd. Judas had to kiss him so that the, the soldiers who came knew who it was to, uh, to take. Um, he had to, be, had to be marked out. There was, there was nothing in him that, that, that marked him out as special. The people of his day knew that. They were confused by him. They're like, oh, yeah, isn't that Jesus? We know him. Well, don't we know his mother and his brothers and his sisters and he's the carpenter's son? He's just an ordinary, ordinary guy to, to the appearance of, of mankind. He emptied himself of his, his outward glory. He emptied himself of his heavenly place. His home was heaven. It's where he dwells, not the created heavens. The eternal place of God is his, his eternal home. And he took the despised place of Nazareth. Nazareth. He didn't come to Melbourne or London or New York. He didn't come to the great place of this world. He went to Nazareth. Do you remember the words of Nathaniel? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was the city or the town that people laughed at. It was a town known 
for the character of the people who came from it. They were not good people. He came from, from Nazareth. He was a fugitive in Egypt. He had to go and flee to Egypt and live there for several years. And in his earthly ministry, he said, The foxes have holes, the birds of heaven have nests, the Son of Man has not where to lay his, his head. He didn't have a home. He emptied himself of his heavenly place and home. He emptied himself of his heavenly riches. Um, let's read this verse. I love this verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that for your sakes he being rich became poor, in order that you by his poverty might be enriched. He didn't just become poor in giving up what he had in glory. No, he became poor by the standards of this earth as well. When he needed a coin to show the example of render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, did he pull it out of his pocket? No, he had to ask for one. When Peter asked him about the temple tax, did he pull out of his coin out of his treasury and give it to Peter? No, he told him to go fishing to get one. And surely the disciples did have a money bag and they, they did have they were carrying it about. Judas was carrying it and he was putting it in his own pocket. But the Lord himself didn't have any, any riches. He gave away his heavenly comforts to suffer as a man. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary. He was exhausted. He suffered loss. He felt when others around him died. He cried at the, the tomb of, of Lazarus. He felt betrayed by his friends. If you've had anyone betray you, he was betrayed by, by one that was, that was so close to him. One who he counted a close friend. Um, he was denied by another who was made even closer still. He was depressed. If you've ever been depressed, he was sorrowful unto death. Depressed to the point where he wanted perhaps his life. I don't want to say those words, but he was just, he was at that point. Sorrowful even unto death, the scripture tells us. He gave up his heavenly comforts. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Tells us why he did it. Remember we spoke about humility? You think the Lord Jesus thought about it one day. And he said, you know what? I'm going to humble myself. I'm just going to see how far I can go. I'm going to leave the heavenly glory. I'm going to go down to this miserable earth. I'm going to pick the worst city. I'm going to be born in a poor family. And then I'm going to empty myself of everything. I'm going to suffer and, and go down to the very lowest place just so I can show everyone that I can go down to the lowest place. Was that his motive? No. He wasn't thinking about himself at all. He was thinking about us. He was thinking about us. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like to his brethren 
that he might be a merciful <clears throat> and faithful high priest in things relating to God. He wanted to be like us. He wanted to take his place amongst us because he loved us. He wanted to be a faithful and merciful high priest and so he emptied himself. He knew that he couldn't reach us when he was in the glory apart from him coming amongst us in our midst as one of us, as a man and as the lowest of men. Humility. Um, the scripture also tells us that he, he suffered being tempted in like manner to us in everything, sin apart. If there's anything that you, you suffer, and suffering comes in as many varieties as there are human beings. If there is anything that you suffer, he has suffered it, whatever it might be. Perhaps not in the same circumstances in which you suffer it, but in a similar circumstance, no matter what it, what it might be. And just very briefly, a couple more. He gave up his heavenly separation and he dwelt amongst sinners. In heaven, there was nothing to make him sad. There was nothing in heaven to weary his heart. But he came into this world where he saw the corruption of men, where he saw the double thoughts and the triple thoughts of our hearts, where he saw the way we do good things and we only do it because we care about other people. We care what people see of us. We care what people think of us. He saw through all those things. He saw the sin. He saw the hatred. He saw the unjustness. He saw the, the suffering that sin had brought into this world. He saw it all and he felt it. We don't feel it. We have a shell of hardness around our hearts. We, we learn to just, it's fine. We'll get used to it. He didn't. He didn't. He gave up his heavenly rights. And this is really where we, we're going to move on to, to the next part. But he gave up his heavenly rights. His heavenly rights, no one tells him what to do. He was not obedient in eternity past. Let me make that clear. He was eternally the son. But there was no need to be obedient. There was nothing to be obedient to. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit are one and equal. They are in unison. But the moment he humbled himself and emptied himself to come into this world, he became obedient. The scripture tells us, he learnt obedience by the things that he suffered. You don't learn something that is already natural to you. Obedience was not his natural place. He had to learn it. Do you know what man's place is? Obedience. I'm born, I'm obedient to my parents. I have to be. It's my place. I become an adult. I am now obedient to the Lord. I'm obedient to the policeman. Who keeps the authority. I'm obedient to the government. Because they set the laws. The life of a man. In this world. Is a life of obedience. Man's place is to be obedient. Law, we are not lawless. God designed us to be obedient. And the moment he decided to become a man. He also decided to, to become obedient. And um, I'm not going to read them all for the sake of time. But we have many references. Especially in the gospel of John. Where he says, I come not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. 
I do nothing except that which the Father does. The Father shows me and I, and I do those same things. When you have lifted me up, then you shall know that I am he and I do the will of my Father. He came to be obedient and, and he, he learnt it. And blessed person who the Lord Jesus is, he's going to be a man forever. He abides a man, man forever. I don't want to even think or explain because I don't understand how that's going to look like in the future. But I do know that even now he is a servant. He still serves. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He speaks of, of girding himself and serving those who have served him. He continues to serve because it is the man's place. Many of you will be familiar with that story about the Hebrew servant. Um, who said, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free. And his ear was, was nailed to the, to the door. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He became a servant. He emptied himself of that rightful place to become a servant on this earth. But now we need to move to the next verse. So if we go back to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2 and verse verse 8. So that's a big stoop, isn't it? <laughs> the very highest place to the very lowest place. Could you go any further? Imagine if you went to a poor man, you know, you see sometimes beggars on the side of the street with a sign like, you know, like, I have no home. Please give me money. And, and they've got a little hat out and people walk past and they, they throw some money in there for the poor beggar to, to go maybe get some, get some food. Imagine if you went up to that beggar and you said to him, you're pretty low, but you could go lower, man. <laughs> Why don't you humble yourself a bit more, a bit more than that? You can go lower than that. We wouldn't think of doing that. Imagine the despair that you would, you would bring upon such a person. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. So the scripture tells us, being found now in figure as a man, he humbled himself. This isn't the humbling of emptying himself of his God, godly place in heaven. This is the humbling of now being a man, and a poor man at that, of be going even lower still to, to serve. Um, <coughs> you know... One of my favorite, one of my favorite, I'll read you a few scriptures. Um, Matthew chapter 20 and verse, verse 28. Some of these verses are just so touching to the heart. Matthew 20 and 28. Do you know that in the closing scenes of the Lord's life, do you know what the disciples were occupied with? I heard someone say it. Who's the greatest? That's it. He was right there ready to go to the cross and the disciples were occupied with, hey, who amongst us is the greatest? Who's the one who's going to be sitting at his right hand? Who's the one who's going to be sitting at his left hand? You guys might be embarrassed by this, but two of them even asked their mum to go put a word in for them. <laughs> Would you ever do that? Would you ask your mum to go talk to your friends and say, hey, um, show my son a bit more respect, please. You'd be embarrassed to do that, wouldn't you? So James and John did. Their mum came and had a word with the Lord. 
to try, to try to get them a higher place. That's the ridiculous level in which they, they found themselves. But do you know what the Lord Jesus says to them? Matthew chapter 20 and verse, verse 28. As indeed the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke chapter 22. I think this verse is just so beautiful. Luke chapter 20, 22 and verse 27. Some of us at the table were talking about godly men who um, we looked up to in the past. We were going through some um, brothers and sisters that we have known from an older generation um, who, who taught us so much, some by their example, some by their words, some by their, their deeds. Um, for me, this verse, I remember uh, Mr. Hepworth would always quote it. Luke chapter 22 and verse 27. I heard him say it so much that it comes out with his voice when I, when I, when I read it. But I am in the midst of you as the one that serves. Think about that. <laughs> the disciples are fighting over who is the greatest. And the Lord Jesus is saying to them, I am in the midst of you as one who serves. I'm in the midst of you here to help you. When he girds himself and gets his towel out and the water and he begins to wash their feet while they're, they're bickering. While they're fighting over who, who is the greatest. Um, let that be an example to us of, of, of true, true humility. And I want to point out to you guys something that as the Lord humbled himself, it was in the pathway of obedience. In that verse in Philippians 2, it said he was obedient unto death, even at the death of the cross. So his humbling went hand in hand with his obedience. Okay, so the more he obeyed, the more he found himself in a lower place. The more he obeyed, the more he found himself going lower and lower yet. And perhaps that is something that that we need to really think about. Um, that if we are not really being humbled, the question is, are we being obedient? There are things in my life where I have not been obedient. But the moment I change course and be obedient, I'm humbled. It's changed things. I need to make things different. There's sorrow associated with that. There is a lowliness. For the Lord, there wasn't the sorrow of doing the wrong thing. But the more he obeyed, the more he followed the pathway that God gave him, the more he found himself, he found himself in a lower and lower place. God told him to go and preach to the cities that were about. And guess what the cities did? They turned away from him. And he felt the failure of his ministry. In Isaiah, it speaks prophetically of him. Um, if, you know, Isaiah 49, 4, it's up to you if you want to, you want to turn to it, but I'll, <clears throat> I'll read it quickly to you. In Isaiah verse, uh, sorry, 49 and verse 4. He said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught, for nothing and in vain. Nevertheless, my judgment is with Jehovah and my work is, is with my God. He felt the failure of the place in which Israel was in. 
He was their Messiah. He was their king. He came to them and he felt greatly the place in which they had just rejected God, turned away from him, would have nothing of him. He felt the pride of his disciples. He felt the inability of them to share with him in his, in his comfort. Um, we've mentioned some of these before. I'm not going to go over them, go over them again. But as, as the closing scenes of his life, you can be sure that the lower he went, the more, the more he felt it. Um, he felt the unjust accusations of the Jews. He felt the mocking. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Herod put a robe on him and then sent him back to Pilate as a joke. They beat him, they spit upon him, they scorned him. He felt the questions that were directed at him on the cross denying his divinity. If thou be God, why don't you bring yourself down? Oh, he said he trusts in God. Why doesn't he pray to God? Let's see if God hears him. He felt it. And the more he was obedient, the more he suffered, the more he was humble, the more he went down until he went to the very lowest place. And Philippians tells us it was it was death, but not just any death. That's why you draw this graph. He went down to the worst death that you could possibly think of. The death of a cross, openly ridiculed, openly humiliated, lying naked in front of a crowd cheering hateful things towards him. The same crowd, perhaps, of people whose children he had raised, whose children he had healed, whose servants he had brought and healed, whose people he had done good amongst, as we had heard yesterday. Openly mocking, hating, rejecting him. A spectacle before all. And that the death of the cross. And I'm not going to go any further there. I'm going to, going to leave it at that because um, there's another side to what happened on the cross. And that's going to be addressed in the, in the next address that Greg gives us. Now, I just want to, in five minutes, I just want to give you a few words of, of application. And I think we can find them here in, in Philippians chapter 2. We don't need to, uh, or in the surrounding chapters, we don't need to, to look, look for, for far um, we've spoken about the need to be humbled for the sake of sin. I trust that everybody here knows that they are a sinner. Trust that everybody here knows that that place of the cross is their place. If God had to give you what rightfully belongs to you, you would be hung up on a cross as well. So that God may show the world how awful a person you and I are. That is what we deserve. And then you maybe would judge you for your sins. Just think about that for a second. Let that weigh upon your, your soul if you have not weighed it already. And consider this, that he took that place for you. Another point of application. If he has taken that place for you and you wish to serve him. Philippians chapter 3. You've got to empty yourself. The things that you count for gain, you can no longer count for gain. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, um, I had a lot of reasons to boast, he says. I was 
As to circumcision, I received it on the eighth day. I was of the race of Israel. I was from the, the, the right people. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a very blessed tribe. Um, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Um, I, was, I was correct as to, to, to everything. Um, the place that God could give, I was, that, I was that man. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. And again, don't caricature the Pharisees. The people of their day didn't caricature them. The Pharisees were not the people who went around being hypocrites. They did that. But that, it's not the caricature that you think it was. The Pharisees were the people that the people thought very highly of. And the people didn't think much of the, the Sadducees and the scribes and people who denied the word of God. They thought a lot of the Pharisees. They thought those were the holy people. They were the people who knew the word of God and they were the people who lived by it. That's what the peop- that was the place that the Pharisees had. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee. It wasn't just any Jew. I was a Pharisee. As to persecuting the assembly, I was there. Someone was going to put their neck out against what was the right way. I was going to make sure that it was dealt with. As to righteousness in the law, I was found blameless. Blameless. I'm the man. I have my own righteousness. I'm pretty much perfect. He had to empty himself. Paul says the things that I counted for gain, I had to count but loss on the account of the excellency of the knowledge of the Lord. Um, I count them to be filth that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which would be on the principle of law, but which is by faith of Christ. Um, In verse seven, the things that were gained to me, these I counted on account of Christ's loss. Young people, what do you count for gain? Or perhaps, what do you hope one day to count for gain? Do you wish to rise up in this world and be a great person in one way or another? Do you wish to be a great leader, a great influencer, a great powerful person, a wealthy person, pockets lined with money? Do you wish to be a person whom the world respects? Do you wish to be a person who has a great career, a great family, a great life, a great whatever it may be? Do you wish to be a great sportsman, a great athlete? Do you wish to be a great writer, a great novelist? Do you wish to be a great dancer? Do you wish to be a great whatever? I don't know you as well as you know yourself. Sarah is laughing. I think maybe he wants to be a dancer. (laughs) (laughs) What do you wish to be? What do you aspire to? If we are to follow the Lord Jesus, we really must empty ourselves of our aspirations. You know, in the assembly, none of these things count for anything. None of these things count for anything in the assembly. A celebrity in the assembly is the same as you and I. An intelligent man in the assembly is no more a teacher than a plumber who didn't go to school. A wealthy man in the assembly is no more able to give and to serve than a poor man who doesn't have what to give. A great musician 
who can sing very well. His voice is not more valuable in the assembly than one who sings out of tune. A confident sister is of no more value in helping souls than a shy sister who finds it difficult to speak. These things are of no value. They are of no consequence in the assembly. There must be an emptying of them. Brothers and sisters, they are indifferent things. They mean nothing. We are all equal in the sight of God in the lowest place. But also, the humbling. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Do you know why problems come up in assemblies? Perhaps for many reasons. But here is a great reason why they come up. That you may think the same thing, having the same love, joined in soul, thinking one thing, let nothing be in the spirit of strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, each esteeming the other as more excellent than themselves, regarding not his, each his own qualities, but each those of others also. Perhaps we'll just close it with those words. If you want to make sure you keep the unity in the assembly, think about this. Your brothers and your sisters are better than you. They are better than you. They are better Christians than you are. If you're to humble yourself, just remember that. Humbling is not thinking little of yourself. It's doing the thing without thinking about yourself at all. Have a look around you. There are needs in the church of God. And there are needs in the world. Perhaps don't even think if you're able to meet those needs with the Lord's help, you can do anything. Don't think about, um, uh, I'm not as good as, as sharing the gospel as, as, as this brother. I'm not as good as teaching as that brother. I'm not as good as speaking to someone, encouraging him as, as that, that sister is. I'm not as good as, as, as organizing things as, as, uh, as whoever it is might be. Just find where the need is. Fill it. Fill it and the Lord will give you strength. Amen.